0: Someone once said, Christianity would be easy if there were no other people in the world. Because our greatest challenge usually is other people. How about it? Tell the person beside you, you are my greatest challenge. Some of you really got into that. Like, yeah, you are my greatest challenge. It's loving people, forgiving people, being patient with them, the frustration of managing difficult uh, circumstances that frustrate us the most. In fact, the people that are most challenging usually are not the strangers on the street. How many of you know that sometimes it's easier to be nice to the stranger at the gas station than it is the people that live under your own roof. They're like, hi, how are you? Good to see you, oh yeah, nice day, right? The weather's nice, get home. Hey, get this dog out of the way. How come you're late? Sometimes home is the most challenging place for us to really live out the principles of Christianity. And not only the home, but oftentimes marriage is actually the hardest place so today i'm going to talk to you a little bit about this whole concept of marriage now if you're single today this will apply because you may be married one day or even if you're not planning on getting married or you think you're past the age of getting married i think there's principles in here that will help you so if you're engaged thinking about getting married, happily married, not so happily married. I think these principles that we'll talk about today will be powerful for anybody's life because they're out of the word of God. Now, let me just say to begin with that I have been married. I am married to one wife for the last 29 years. Next year, it'll be 30 years, 30 years that I've been married, yeah. My wife's name is Dee, and she, are you in the house, Dee? Are you back there? She's typically out in the children's ministry, and um, uh, an incredible woman that I've had the privilege to be married to, and so if anybody needs a round of applause, it's her for being married to me, but she's an incredible woman. And I honestly have to say, that I love spending time with her. I enjoy her after 30 years of marriage. Man, she's my best friend. When I when when I go somewhere and I'm excited about an experience I had, I, I say, like, I wish my wife were here because I want to share it with her. And um, I know that that is a gift that God has given us. And I believe that sometimes it's the rare exception in our society today. But 29 years ago, when I got married, I remember walking into that little chapel, standing at the front, very nervous, seeing my bride walk in. And she looked so beautiful on that day, walking down the aisle. Her father handed her off. I stood there. We pronounced our vows to one another until death do us part. Actually, my father, who's a who was a missionary in Spain, married us. And then as we Walked out of the aisle, down the aisle at the end of the ceremony in the processional. We entered into a limousine that we had there that said, uh, just married on the back. And we started driving around past the house where she grew up in. It was a beautiful day. I'm looking at my wife. She's dressed in her wedding dress. Can't believe that I just married this incredible woman beside me. And our car stopped at a stoplight on, uh, just down the road and our windows were down and there in the corner was a guy with a brown bag in his hand, kind of stumbling a little bit like this. And he said, Hey buddy. And I thought he was going to congratulate me. I said, yeah. He said, worst decision you ever made in your life. I feel sorry for you. And then we drove off. And I bet if I would have got out of that car and talked to him, he had a story about a marriage that did not turn out so good. Because really, 50% of people here in America that said, I do, with expectation and glee in their eyes and anticipation of a great marriage, sometime down the road will say, I don't, I quit, I don't want this anymore. So out of half of, 50% of the marriages in America end up in divorce. Out of those 50 that remain married, I don't know what the stats are exactly, but there's a lot of them that are married out of convenience or because of the kids or because we have to, but don't seem very happy in their marriage. So it seems to be that if you do a survey, that there is a small percentage of people that actually have good, healthy marriages in this country that last a while i think that problem deserves looking at the taking some time to look at the original plan the designer the creator of this thing that we call marriage and saying if god created it designed it then he probably knows how it is supposed to work the best and so i'm going to take some time this morning to look at two verses that deal directly about marriage. There's some hard verses. Some of you are going to cringe when I read them. There's some hard verses, but I think they're very powerful. Before I read these verses, let me just say that I know that some of you started out with a lot of great excitement in your marriage, and it seems to be, unless we cultivate our marriage, that it tends to degenerate or the heat and excitement tends to slowly begin to wane in our marriage. I heard someone describe it like this. They talked about marriage begins warm and intimate, but it degenerates. Consider the seven ages of a marriage cold. Okay, so the first year, if your wife gets a cold, the husband says something like this, sugar, I'm worried about my little baby girl. You've got a bad sniffle. I want to put you in the hospital for a complete checkup. I know food is lousy, but I've arranged to get you meals sent to you from Giordano's. It's all arranged, honey. Don't worry about it. (laughs) The second year is, listen, honey, I don't like the sound of that cough. I've called Dr. Miller, and he's going to rush right over here. Now, will you go to bed and be a good girl just for me, please? The third year. Maybe you better lie down, honey. Nothing like a little rest... When you're feeling bad, I'll bring you something to eat. Have we got any soup in the house? The fourth year, look, dear, be sensible. After you fed the kids, wash the dishes, you better get, you better hit the sack. The fifth year, why don't you take a couple aspirin? The sixth year, if you just gargle or something, instead of sitting around barking like a seal. The seventh year, for heaven's sake, stop sneezing. What are you trying to do? Give me pneumonia? And some of us, what happens is we start good, we start strong, we start sensitive, but over years, we allow our hearts to start getting cold, insensitive, and lacking that spark that we had once at the beginning. Well, in the book of Colossians, the Apostle Paul is speaking to the believers at Colossae, and his entire teaching is on relationships, in Colossians chapter 1, he talks about the supremacy of Christ, who Christ is, how Christ needs to be number one and center of the believer's life. As he gravitates to chapter 3, he starts talking about, hey, if you are in Christ, then you're, you have a new identity. The old is gone and the new is come. You're not like everybody else in this world. You've put off your old attitudes. You're taking on a new attitude because your life now belongs to Christ, and Christ has you live your life a different way. You see, religion tells us that what changes is what we do on Sunday morning. And some of you have grown up, and that is your understanding of religion. It's that you go to some religious service and perform a religious duty during a specific allotted time on Sunday morning. But relationship is much more than that. Relationship with God means that your life is absolutely, radically, 100% transformed Monday through Saturday as well. The way you walk, the way you talk, the way you think, the way you relate to other people, the way you spend your money, what you do with your time, how you view the world is all changed when you're in a dynamic, life-giving relationship with the creator of the universe through his son, Jesus Christ. That's relationship. Relationship. And what changes even more, how much more should our most intimate relationship, which is the relationship of marriage, be affected by our relationship with God? So in Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, the Apostle Paul says, And whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all, In the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The Apostle Paul says, hey, you're a new creation. You're leaving the old you. You're taking on the new you. And now that you have put on the new you, which is transformed in Christ, which is different than the old you, now whatever you do, whether it's speaking or whether it's doing, You need to do it for the ultimate motive of serving your Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives in you, who's transforming you, who's created you into a new individual. And then he says, he goes right into a passage talking about marriage and family. I believe the Apostle Paul did that because he knew that where we most need Jesus Christ and his influence in our life has to do with those relationships that are hardest. Marriage and family he gives two verses about marriage. I'm going to read them. Verse 18 and verse 19. Some of you, especially the women, when I read this first verse, some of you are not going to like it. You're going to bristle a little bit. The hairs on the back end of your neck are going to stand up a little bit because you're not going to like this verse. So, but I want you to give me an opportunity to unpack it because it's just as challenging for the husbands as it will be for the wives. So here's what it says. He says, after saying, whatever you do, do it for Christ. Then he says, wives, how many wives do we have in the house? Married women, okay, quite a few. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Silence in the house. (laughs) Verse 19, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. These are two verses, but they're powerful verses. I'm going to um, unpack them a little bit and explain them with other scriptures so that we understand exactly what the Apostle Paul is telling us about this. A, A parallel passage, a parallel passage is a passage that kind of explains the same thought is found in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 33. It says, however, each one of you speaking to husbands must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So if you're going to renew your marriage and have the kind of marriage that God is calling you to, these two verses speak to the heart of some of our major issues in marriage. It speaks to a woman's need to honor and respect the leadership of her husband, and it speaks to the man's need, the husband's need, to love unconditionally and understand the heart of his wife as he nurtures it in her life. Love and respect, two of the most powerful concepts that need to be applied in marriage. So I'm going to start with the wives because the scripture passage starts with the wives. Are you okay with that, wives? don't worry I'll get to the husband so it's coming so he says wives submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord now I know that this word submission in and of itself conjures up some negative images because really the only place that we use the word submission typically is in negative environments Two MMA fighters fighting each other, and one of them has the guy's arm up behind him, and it's called a submission move. And it feels forced, it feels controlled, and it's not a word that you would like to associate with your marriage. But I want you to understand what the Apostle Paul is actually saying with this word, and dig in a little bit. And before the husband starts pounding his chest like King Kong, saying, I'm the man, I'm the man... Because I know some husbands that the only verse in the Bible they know is this one. They don't go to church, have a Bible, quote the Bible, but they know that one's in there. Hey, doesn't the Bible say somewhere I'm the head and you're supposed to submit? They, all they know is that verse in the Bible. That's their favorite verse, their only verse. And so I want to explain a little bit what this verse means and what it does not mean. The word submit is actually a military term. So it's used in and refer to military categories and one placing themselves under someone else's leadership. So technically it means that a wife voluntarily places herself under her husband's leadership. It is to give place to the position as God's ordained leader in the home. Now, this is a voluntary choosing to say, I respect you as the leader of our household. Now, I want to explain exactly what that means and what it doesn't mean. First of all, it doesn't mean that one person is more valuable than the other person, because the Bible is clear about the fact that men and women are of equal value to God. Uh, He says in uh, Scripture just earlier that there is no Greek or slave or free or Jew or man or woman, but we are all one in Christ. So it's not... It has nothing to do with value. It has to do with function. Even in the triune God itself, what we call the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, they are all equal in essence and nature and value, but yet they have different functions. God the Father, for example, in prayer, God the Father is the one that determines whether the prayer is answered. God the Son, Jesus, gives us access to God the Father. He's the mediator between us and God. We, we can only come to God through Jesus. And God the Holy Spirit is the one that actually teaches us what to pray and prompts us to pray. So God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, three in one, equal in value, but each of them have a different function when it comes how, to how they operate. Even within your own family, I believe that God has functions because function determines order. Where there is cl- where there is no clarity in terms of function, there is chaos. If you showed up at your job tomorrow, no one had a job description and no one had an assigned position to what they do, but it was all just open-ended, there would be chaos. Because within a job, people have a job, a position, a description, and usually an order of who they give account to. If not, it's anarchy, it's chaos, no decisions are made, it it implodes upon itself where there's no clarity of order. You look at creation itself, and creation, you you can see that God is a God of order, God is a God of design, God is a God of pattern, and so it is within the family. You may be parents of an 18-year-old. Now, technically and legally, that person is considered by the state of Illinois an adult. They are an adult child, maybe living within your home. But yet, even though they're an adult and of equal value and are able to vote, there's still an pecking order in the house. Hopefully, you're still the parents and that 18-year-old is still considered the child in your house. And it's not them running the house, but you still setting the rules of your house. You say, well, to how old? Well, I think that as long as they're living in your house and living off of your income, they need to follow the rules of your house. That's the parents clapping, by the way. Because I know there's some 25-year-olds in the house telling you, I'm an adult now. Don't tell me what to do. I'm an adult now. Well, if you're an adult, then you need to live on your own and live off of your own and pay your own bills. But as long as you're not and living in the house, you still need to, you still need to honor and respect the rules of the household, basically. So there's an order there that's given. Within marriage, what the Apostle Paul is saying is that husband and wife before God are equal before God, have equal access to God, are of the same value before God. This is not determining a, a, a gender superiority or not. This is simply saying that there's a different function. And within the establishment of the household In the household that God has established, he establishes that the man needs to step up to the plate of leadership within the household. That the man needs to take on the responsibility of leading that household in a way that honors God. So, when you have a husband that is saying, I'm not shying away from responsibility, I'm stepping up to the plate... I'm leading this household in a godly way. I'm taking responsibility for the economy of this household, the protection of this household, making sure that the values of our household are here. I'm not passive or disengaged or irresponsible, but I'm stepping up to the plate. And you have a wife that's saying, and you have a husband that's saying that, and a wife that's respecting him and encouraging him, and a husband that's saying, I'm going to love you unconditionally, and cherish you, and protect you, and give myself, and understand you, then you have a powerful combination of love and respect that creates an environment that's a great environment to raise children. Yeah. So the apostle Paul says, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. This word fitting in the Lord simply implies that if you are a follower of Christ, if you're a Jesus follower, it's fitting for you to come under the leadership of your husband and back his leadership. By the way, can I say this just addressing the men for for a minute? I believe that one of the great tragedies of our culture today is the passivity of men. By the passivity of men, I mean a culture in which men oftentimes have not stepped up to the plate of leadership, oftentimes have not taken on responsibilities, have been disengaged in the parenting process, have been detached emotionally from their wives, have not taken, shouldered the responsibility of provision have not looked at their household and said, I'm called to be a priest to my household and bring values to my household that represent and honor God. And so we have a culture of passivity among men and oftentimes a culture of women who, have, who are distrustful, who have been hurt by authority, and so oftentimes they're aggressive, so we have Uh, men that are passive, women that are aggressive, and oftentimes the household is up for grabs because there's not a unity in the household as to what are the rules of this household, the values of this household, and many homes are chaotic. In fact, I believe that one of the great tragedies of Adam and Eve was the passivity of Adam. God put Adam and Eve in a garden And there was this beautiful place to live, to prosper, to conquer. And when Eve was tempted by the serpent to eat of the forbidden fruit, the great tragedy is not that Eve was tempted. The great tragedy is that Adam was passive. Because when she brought the fruit to Adam, instead of Adam saying, no, you know that our creator has asked us not to eat of that fruit. No, I'm going to guard you and protect you and our household and our family. Instead, he was passive in his leadership. And he took of the fruit and we've all struggled with the, what theologians call the fall of man and the sin nature since the fall of Adam and Eve. We have men in our society... You have been called, created, engineered, designed by your creator to step up to the plate and lead in a godly way. But oftentimes men have become passive. It's the men that's sitting on the rocker chair, disengaged with this family, unaware of what's going on, not creating a culture, not holding responsibility, not determining the direction of this household, but just letting life happen, letting their kids kind of do whatever, uh, happens, no discipline, no structure, no order, no direction to the household, passive, oftentimes having children and not taking responsibility, um, not getting married, uh, not, um, not being involved with the children that they have, uh, wanting to play as adult men, but not wanting to settle down and take responsibility for the household. It's the tragedy of men that are passive. And I believe in Christ. Listen to me, men. That may be who you were, but that is not who God has called you to be. You've been called to lead. You have been called to bring value and structure, take responsibility, step up to the plate, and not back away from the responsibility that God has called you to. That's the kind of men that we're seeking to raise in this church, men that step up to the plate of leadership and do not shy away from the responsibility of leading. And so he says, is it fitting in the Lord, wives, submit yourself to your husbands. And I want to say this, uh, by the way, to you wives about what it means to support and back your husband in leadership. The Bible speaks to women directly, and it says, women, respect your husband. Or in this case, it says, women, submit to your husband's leadership or come behind or under your husband's leadership. And what it means, it takes a strong woman to support her husband's leadership. A strong woman. This is not advocating for mousiness. This is not some sniveling woman that has no identity and no opinions and, and, and who's weak and timid and, and needs a man to survive saying, okay, whatever you say, hubby. No, no, that's not what it's advocating for. It's advocating for a strong, value-driven woman of identity that understands who she is and understands her value. And because she's strong and not driven by fear, she has the ability to support the leadership of her husband and to breathe and inspire confidence in his ability to lead the household. Women, you may not understand the power that you have to influence your husband. God has given you an incredible ability to speak confidence into his leadership. There is something compelling about a woman that believes in a man and says, no matter what happens, I want you to know that I'm in your corner and I believe in you. There's something powerful about a man being able to look into his corner and know that there's a woman that believes in him and his leadership and his capacity and his ability and that says, I will stand beside you. I believe that God has called you to lead. I trust your leadership. I'm standing with you. I'm behind you. You can do that. There's something about that that inspires a man. Something powerful that inspires a man. I have to say that over the years I personally have experienced this on multiple occasions so many occasions with my wife even stepping into the pastorate I was 21 years old when I started pastoring and my wife even before the opportunity to pastor opened she said I believe you're going to pastor I believe you're going to be a pastor I said no I don't know if I'm the pastor kind I'm not sure I fit the mold. I don't know. You know, I had my own stereotype what a pastor who had to look like, be like and act like and I just nah, I don't I don't think I'll be a good pastor. And she said, "No. I know you can. I believe you. I believe you're a godly man." I believe you can lead. And most of the people in the congregation when I started pastor were older than me. And she said, I believe that you can do it. You have a calling of God on your life and you'd be an awesome pastor. I trust your leadership. You don't know. And her speaking into my life gave me a boost of confidence that I needed because I thought if my wife believes in me, if she's behind me, maybe I can do this. And over the years that sense of I'm with you that sense of confidence that sense of I'm backing you I trust you you can do it does incredible things to a man's ability so I want I want you to know but I know some of you maybe even as I'm speaking you may say yeah pastor but what if my husband is not that way what if my husband isn't a guy that really leads well what if he's not trustworthy what if he's not to that place of having a godly character and someone that i really believe in how can i really come behind someone that is not where he needs to be and i want to tell you you know we're all married to imperfect people your husband imperfect and so are you but Some of you need to start speaking into the destiny of your husband, not as to who he is right now, but who you expect him to be. Some of you need to say, I know you will be this man. I believe God can use you. You're speaking not to who he is, but to who he's growing up to be, who God is transforming him into. You're coming, believing that God will bring him into that place that he's called him to be. And I believe that there's four attitudes that hinder can hinder your husband's leadership as you struggle maybe to come under or behind his leadership in the household. Uh, Number one is what I would call the qualifying support, where you say, I'll follow him if he. In other words, I would follow his leadership if he, and you qualify, if he were more godly, if he were smarter, if he finished his education, if he got a job that made more money than me, if he, you know, didn't go over to his mother's house every other weekend. I I would follow him if, and you qualify it. And I want to say, you know, as long as you keep qualifying it, you'll always have an excuse not to back his leadership. Because there'll always be something that you'll say, you'll find a reason why you really shouldn't back his leadership. And so that's discredit. That keeps you out of the game of supporting his leadership. Number two is grudging support. I'll follow my husband's leadership, but I don't like it. He always makes bad decisions. I'll do it, but... Kind of grudgingly following his leadership. Or the third one is the faithless support. Like, okay, I'm going to follow his leadership, but I'm afraid he won't lead us properly. He's going to make wrong decisions. He always does. He's impulsive. He's not going to do this right. So I'm going to follow. Oh, we're going to end up in mass if I do this. So that faithless sort of leadership that comes in, or the forced support. Like, I, I feel like I have to follow him. I feel like it's my, I'm obligated to. It's not something that I willingly do, but I feel like because I'm, 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 I'm a wife or because I'm a Christian, I have to do this. I feel like I'm in this forced area of supporting my husband. All of those four attitudes, what they do is they take away from the power of your husband to lead. They take away from the power of your husband to lead. Let me tell you something, women. There's something freeing and powerful releasing when you come to grips with the fact that your husband is responsible for certain things before God, and you're called to say, okay, God, I'm submitting ultimately to you, and if you've called my husband to lead, I'm going to back him, but ultimately, I'm trusting you, not trusting my husband, Do you understand the difference? Ultimately, I'm trusting you to work through my husband, but my confidence and my faith is not in my husband. My faith is in God who works through my husband. There's a difference there. Now, you may be saying, well, pastor, you know, I can think of several occasions in which Maybe I shouldn't follow his support and I do want to qualify this. I think there's certain there's certain situations in which um, you would not follow the lead of your husband. And I qualify them, for example, when a husband asks his wife to sin or do something unethical or something contrary to God. Ultimately, Your highest authority is God. So if your husband's asking you to do something that is unethical, immoral, or not right before God, then obviously you would say no. Or if your husband is medically incapacitated or insane or under the influence of mind-altering substance, the wife does not have to submit. When I say insane, by the way, I mean medically diagnosed insane. Not your own... Yeah, Pastor, he's crazy. I know it. My mother says he is too. My sister agrees. So this is not your own little self-diagnosis of it. You know how many wives I've had tell me that I think my husband's really, there's something wrong up there. I've had women tell me that there's something wrong up there with them. Really, there's something got to be wrong up there. Or obviously, if the husband is violent or physically threatening, there's not... That's that's not a part of the story of saying I I need to stay in a a house that I'm being physically abused or, or that's abusive. Obviously, there's there's no condoning of that kind of behavior there. But overall, in normal situations where the husband is leading, you are called as a woman of God to say, I have the natural ability and natural inclination to be able to lead. But as a strong woman of God, full of identity, because I'm following Jesus Christ, I put myself in this position of saying, I'm going to back the leadership of my husband. I'm going to work together with him. And by the way, if this works the way God wants it to work and he's loving you and listening to you and sensitive to you, this is not going to feel like a dictatorship or an autocratic uh, experience. This is going to feel like a partnership of, one, of oneness where two people are flowing in harmony together to accomplish the bit better and bigger purposes for their household and their calling in life. That's the way it should look like. I believe that the ability to trust God to lead through your husband and to honor his leadership and to support his leadership and to back his leadership and to respect him and bring out the best in him as a leader is your God-given ability and destiny and calling as a woman of God. You have incredible power an incredible influence over your husband. Exercise it. And then the Apostle Paul switches his attention in marriage to the husbands. How many of you wives are saying, yeah, thank you, Jesus. Now it's the husband's turn. To the husband's, It's a very simple, clear, short verse, and it says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Some of you are saying, that seems easier. Some of the wives are like, that seems easier than my role. But if we really understand this, it's quite the opposite. The word he uses here when he says, husbands, love your wives... There's three different words that we translate from the Greek into the English as love. Philio, which is where we get the word Philadelphia from, brotherly love. Eros, where we get the word erotic from, and it's it's about romantic love. It's about sensual, sexual, romantic love. And then agape or agapeo which is the highest form of love that someone could embrace. It's unconditional love, the kind of love that God has for us. In this context, in this verse, he's not saying, Husbands, be romantically involved with your wife. It's not Eros. Husbands, be the friend of your wife. It's not Filio. It's husbands, agapeo your wives. In other words, husbands, I want you to love your wives unconditionally. In a powerful way that, that doesn't depend on how they act or who they are, but you are choosing to love them in a committed, unconditional way. That's agapeo. So husbands, agapeo your wives, and do not be harsh with them. Or do not be, literally in the Greek it says, embittered towards them. Uh, th- this word means don't be harsh, rude, impatient, critical, Um, embittering type as you deal with them. In other words, be sensitive as you deal with them. And let me unpack it, unpack this for you a little bit, because there's a parallel passage found in Ephesians chapter five, where the apostle Paul actually describes what it means to actually love our wives. And it says in Ephesians chapter five, Uh, it's talking about husbands, and it says in verse 25, Husbands, love your wife just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of water through the word, to present to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. So husbands, what does it mean to love your wives? Well, it means a couple of things. Number one, it means that you give yourself for her. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You see, a lot of people get into marriage to have their needs met. And if you're getting into marriage just so that your needs will be met, chances are you're going to struggle in your marriage. Well, I'm getting married because I want a companion. I want to have sex and a Christian, I can't have sex unless I'm married. The man's thinking, I want someone to, you know, make a household for me. I want to come home to a nice dinner, a back rub, foot massage. Hey, dude, you shouldn't have got married, seriously. (laughs) Like, I want my knees to be met because... What happens is somewhere down the road, if you get in with that mentality, your needs are not going to be met the way you expected them to be met. And if you get into a marriage relationship to have your needs met, the day will come where you're going to look and say, hey, my needs aren't being met the way I wanted them to be met. So I want out of this because I'm giving more than I'm receiving. And it'll ebb and flow that way in marriage. But agape love says, I love unconditionally, regardless of whether my needs are fully met or not, because I'm committed to this relationship and the call to love this individual. When I was a student in college, the president of the school that I was attending, his wife came down with severe Alzheimer's Alzheimer's disease. And it was degenerative and progressive. He was a busy man leading a college, and he was an author and speaker, written multiple books and a doctor. But he would go home every day, and he would take care of a woman... Who did not even recognize who he was anymore. And if you're familiar with that disease, it's degenerative and it's tough. She no longer knew who he was. He would spoon feed her, he would take care of her, he would bathe her, he would clothe her. Someone interviewed him and said, Wow, like, do you resent it? I mean, how? you're a busy guy. You have all this. How how could you do this? I mean, have you ever thought of sending her to some institution where someone else could take care of her? And he responded, you know, when I married her, I married her for better or for worse. For sickness or for health. And as long as she's my wife, I'm gonna take care of her and I'm gonna love her. She loved me for so many years. I'm gonna love her back for the years that I have left no matter how long it takes. She ended up dying, but she died as a woman maybe that fully did not understand what her husband did for her, but she died as a very loved and well taken care of woman because she had the love of a husband. That was loving her in an agapeo way. That is a love story. So what does that mean? It means that you... Give of your time, your affection, your attention, your protection. You look out for her interest like Christ looks out for the interests of the church and died on a cross for us. God is calling you as a husband to do the same for your wife, to look out for her best interest, to watch over her in a way that would, that would look, be for the best of her and the best of her interest, not just to use her or ask, how is she meeting my needs, but actually looking out for her needs. The second thing I want you to understand about love is it means bringing out the best in your wife. In verse 26, speaking of Jesus and the church, it says, "...to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing through the water of the word, and to present to her to himself a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or blemish, but holy and blameless." Jesus loved the church in a way that he brings out the best in us. He washes us, he cleanses us, he puts himself, his Holy Spirit inside of us, and he brings out our calling, he brings out the best of us. Listen, men, God has called you to bring out the best in your wife. Occasionally I have a conversation with a man that will say, you know, when I married her, She wasn't like this. She was sweet and beautiful and laughed, and we had fun. And look at her now angry, bitter, ugly. (laughs) And I've had these conversations, and I've said, you know what? We all age. So, you know, she's not going to be who you married 25 years ago, but look at yourself in the mirror, dude. You're not that guy either. But who she is internally, you have something to do with that. Because maybe she's a little angry, bitter, disgruntled because she's been married to you for 30 years. You see, I believe, I believe the heart of a woman is like a flower. And if it's under, if it's not nourished and cared for and watered, then it, it crumbles, it wrinkles up, it withers. But when she's in an environment where someone sees the good, the beauty, honors it, cherishes it, brings out the best in it, then she becomes more radiant. It's your job, man of God, to bring out the best in your wife, to, to, to bring out the shine in her, the laugh, the beauty, the attitude of, yeah. And how's, how's that done? Well, it happens in a couple of ways. I think that you call it out in her, and it happens in ways that you encourage her, first of all. Encourage your spiritual life, but encourage her life encouraging her to use her gifts, encouraging her to see the good that God has inside of her, encouraging her about what she does well and, and, and uh, the gifts and talents that God has given her. The power of encouragement is enormous. Not only encouraging her, but also praising her in private and in public. There's something about praise that brings out radiance. And oftentimes, the way that I hear a man talk about his wife, it reveals something about how he sees her and how he speaks to her in private. Like I know, I know you've used the word, I've heard this oftentimes, someone said, that's my vieja. (laughs) For those of you that don't speak Spanish, that means my old lady. I understand that and maybe it's endearing to you but i'm not sure that as a woman she wants to be referred to as your old lady how about honey beauty babe gorgeous my wife my woman something that doesn't refer to just the old lady that sounds like what you'd speak of a grandmother or Some, no, 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 not my vieja. I I think there's the power of words that could be used to bring out the radiance, to speak into their future, to say, Hey, you're still the woman I want to be around for the rest of my life. Encouragement, praise, affirming her gifts and calling. I believe that's part of your call to bring out that in her, to see the beauty in her. I think when a woman is around a man that that feels like she's beautiful, that sees the smile in her. It makes, it makes that woman want to laugh more. It makes her want to have a better positive attitude. It makes her want to clean up and be ready for a man that appreciates her beauty. But if all she's getting is down and you're nothing and words of discouragement, if all she's getting is, is discouragement and speaking against her, then she starts to wither up because you are called to bring out the radiance in her it means providing for her needs as well it says in verse 28 in the same way husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies he who loves his wife loves himself after all no one ever hated their own body but they feed it and they care for their body just as Christ does for the church so it also speaks to men and he says if you're going to love her You need to actively be the one that provides, protects, and cares. Now, I believe that you, as men, we have a responsibility to care for our household. And I believe that means that you step up to the plate and you have the financial responsibility to care for your household. Now, that doesn't mean that your wife can't work. And listen, it doesn't mean either if she makes more money than you that you're not doing a good job. It simply means that ultimately, she's not the one that should be responsible for the, the household or to provide for. That ultimately, you should be responsible. That ultimately, you should be the one that says, I'm, I'm taking care of you, honey. I'm taking care of this household. I take, I shoulder the responsibility of caring for this household. We do it together. But I shoulder the responsibility to care for you, provide, watch over you, make sure that the kids are cared for, make sure there's a roof over our household, make sure that we're in a safe environment. I take on the responsibility on my shoulders to look after that. Just as Christ provided for us, and by the way, it says when you love your wife that way, you are actually loving yourself. And I wish husbands really knew this. I wish as a husband you really understood that the more that you love your wife, the more it comes back to you. That if you really understood that if you take care of your love, your wife, that actually you are loving yourself as you love your wife. Because it's the greatest investment you can make into your happiness, into your destiny, into your future as well as you love her the way that she deserves to be loved. And then he says, he closes up by saying, and don't be harsh with them. Literally, don't make them bitter, produce a bitter taste, exasperate, render angry, indignant, or irritated. Don't be rude and sensitive, overbearing, or demanding with them. Love them, but don't be harsh with them. Let me just say a word about this, by the way. Men, look up at me. This is really important. The ultimate act of cowardice for any man, the ultimate act of cowardice for any man is to be physically abusive to your wife. When you raise your hand to a woman, oh, she made me do it. No, no, no one makes you do anything. The ultimate act of cowardice, the ultimate disrespect to yourself is to be hit your own body and when a man strikes a woman he is not only dishonoring god he is not only insulting his wife but he is degrading himself no man should ever raise his hand on any occasion under any circumstances towards his wife or any other woman, period. You say, well, pastor, you don't know that's how my father did. I don't care what your father did. That's not you. And if it was how you were raised, and if you engaged in it, then you need, after this service, get on your knees with your wife and say, forgive me, forgive me that I ever struck you, raised a hand against you. Forgive me because I insulted God, I insulted myself, and I insulted you. Apologize profusely for it. He says, don't be harsh. Don't be harsh with your wife. Maybe maybe that's something that you've never struggled with or had problems with. And by the way, to add insult into injury is to strike a woman and then try to convince her that it's her fault that you struck her. That if she was just different or hadn't spoken this way or if she didn't do this, then you would never have to strike her, making her feel like it's her fault that you've raised your hand against her. And another form, by the way, this is not a suggestion from the word of God. This is God telling us as men. And he says, and do not be harsh with them. Another form of harshness oftentimes found in our culture. And maybe it's who you were and maybe you've taken it in from your own life and it peaks its head into your new life. But it's not the new you in Jesus Christ is the harshness of words or abusive language. And some men think that they're justified as long as they don't raise their hand. Listen, if you need to hit something, go hit a window, go kick a car, go pound on the dirt, get your aggression out there, but don't lift your hand towards your wife. And another another thing that men do, they applaud themselves. Oh, I've never lifted my hand, but boy, you have abused with your mouth. Your wife doesn't deserve, she deserves to be respected. Completely and fully. So to demean her physically, to demean her verbally to use the b word against her to speak in any way that's condescending against her to attack her uh, her appearance or her intelligence or her personality to demean her in any way is not should not be close to any household of God you are a man of God that may be who you were that is not who you are in God that has no room in the house of God no room in your marriage and no room in front of your children. In fact, let me simply say this to you men, because maybe you'll understand this better. If you had a daughter, would you want a man to talk to your daughter the way you're talking to your wife? No way, man. I'd break a bat over their head. They would never do that. You had to come close to my daughter. I'm going to. The way you talk to your wife, you are coaching her. You are conditioning her. You are teaching her how her future husband, what she should expect from her future husband. And if you are demeaning or abusive to your wife, you are telling your daughter teaching your daughter, instructing your daughter. It's okay when your husband abuses physically or verbally. You should take it and accept it. You are conditioning her to be in an abusive relationship. I've seen it over and over and over. I've seen the cycle repeated over and over. A woman that grows up in an abusive household marries an abusive man because that's what she knows, that's what she accepts, and that's what she tolerates because she's seen it in, your, in her household. Men, that was an old cycle. We are cycle breakers and legacy makers. That is not who we are. That's not That may be who you used to be, but that's not who you are in God today. And by the way, to close up, here's what it tells us in 1 Peter's: Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. In other words, be understanding. Try to understand who they are and treat them with respect as a delicate partner, as heirs with you in the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. I love this verse because what God is saying to the husbands is... If you refuse to listen to your wives, if you refuse to be sensitive to them, if you refuse to really meet their needs and listen to them and treat them the right way, then God will not answer your prayer either. It's leverage. God's saying, you're not going to treat your wife the right way, then don't talk to me. You know that job promotion that you've been saying? Oh, I really needed. Oh, God, listen to my prayer. Really answer my prayer, God. If I only got that job promotion. If I only got it. Your wife comes up to you. Quiet, woman. I'm trying to pray. Don't you see me? I'm trying to tell God what. Come on. God says you're not going to listen to her. Pray. Mm-hmm. I'm not gonna listen to you either. The moment you start listening to your wife, the moment you start trying to understand her, the moment you start spending some time with her, the moment you start listening to her heart and living with her understanding, then you open up the door so that the God of the universe listens to you as well so that your prayers are not hindered. I've told you this before. Some of you say, I'm fasting and praying that God will answer my prayer. You know what, some of you need to stop fasting and praying. You need to take your wife out to a good steak meal buy her some flowers, sit her down, listen to her for an hour and say, talk to me, honey, and then suddenly your prayers get answered because finally you're treating your wife the way she needs to be treated and God says, aha, now I can answer your prayer. I believe that your marriage doesn't have to be something that you just endure. I believe it can be one of the most powerful experiences that you have on the face of this earth. Let me paint a picture for you. The old you is two people that get old that can barely stand each other. You have your bedroom in one other bedroom, your bed, and he's got it in another place. He watches TV in that room, you watch TV in another room, your kids are gone, and you have very little together except you don't want to get divorced and divide up the assets. You really can't stand each other. You spend as much time out of the house as you can with your friends. She feels neglected and spends time shopping and with her friends and doing her things. You live life separately. And really, there's very little intimacy, very little communication, very little understanding among you. You tolerate each other. And when you die, you'll miss each other. But like you miss a dog that has been there in the house for a long time. But there's very little heart in it. Some of you are moving in that direction. That's the old way. But picture a new way. That you take your heart and you start turning as a man, your heart towards your wife and start seeing what you have unappreciated for so much time. Start speaking into her life and saying, God, I'm going to love her the way you've called me to love her, invest in her, listen to her heart, her emotions, tear down the walls of bitterness that I've had towards her, and I'm going to start loving her unconditionally the way you've called me to love her. And you say, I'm going to start supporting and backing and encouraging him and coming behind him, knowing that I'm in his corner together. And so the kids move out, and now, yeah, you're sleeping in the same bed together still. Laughing together. Spending time together where you think, this is the person I want to hold hands with and stroll down the park and share time together and share stories and instead of being in separate places watching television you're cuddled cuddled on the couch together and you're praying for your children and celebrating and still laughing and having fun and taking trips together and feeling like hey all that we've been through it's so powerful and great that even as we grow older we still are deeply in love with one another blessing our children and grandchildren as they snicker and say look Look how grandma and grandpa still love each other. They're crazy, aren't they? What are you creating? What are you building? What are you developing? I think really it's your choice. Pastor, you don't understand how broken our marriage is. I don't. But I know I serve a healer. That can take the most broken and dysfunctional, heal it and mend it and change it into something powerful and good.